what do brain surgeons say? You know, like people say it's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. Like, well, what do brain surgeons say? And, and my son, Josh, said they probably say it's not like trying to talk to girls. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. we're kind of nerds, right? Julie, I'm really excited for today's interview. I've been looking forward to this for months. Yeah. And this is a new format for us. If you've been following the show for a while, then you know this is different. And if you're new to the show, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Yeah, you picked uh, a good one. You did. You picked a very good episode uh, to join the at-home family community. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I just want to dive right in. I don't even know where to go because I'm just excited to get into it. Well, but I, we have to do a burning question. We do. But otherwise, it'll never happen. Too, I'm, the new format and our desire to have guests on who can really speak into the many spheres of life that we don't have uh, personal experience mm. in. And we do have such a gift of knowing people and being exposed to people. So to bring them to y'all is, is incredible. Yeah. It's a gift to us and we know it'll be a gift to you. Yes. So the burning question, burning, burning question. I, I can throw it to Dr. Lee. Yes. Okay. So Dr. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. I'm going to give formal introduction, all of that after I give you the burning question. Okay. <laughs> Just, we're going to change it up. So here's the burning question. How do you handle arguments and conflicts with your spouse when your kids are around? Hmm. That's the burning question. So that is from listener Breadgeth. Yes, that is the name Breadgeth. Breadgeth, we hear you and we are asking your questions. So Dr. Lee, what would you say to Breadgeth? You know, it, it's a it's a different season for us. Our kids are all grown now. Um, so that doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. But when, when we were raising our kids, you know, we always had a, it, it was important for the kids to know that parents aren't always perfect and that there's not always a perfect um, time in your life. So it's important to know that there's conflict and then learn tools to handle it appropriately. So we would sometimes discuss things in front of the children, but if it really needed to be a private adult conversation, we would say that to the kids, Hey, mom and dad are need to talk about a few things. Everything's okay, but we're going to go in the other room and, and handle this. And you guys will be right back. And so we just, we just made them aware. Conflict is a normal part of a healthy marriage. And sometimes you got to deal with things and, and it's not always appropriate for little years. And so I think it's healthy to, to just tell them we're going to go in the other room, have a conversation. We'll be back. We love you. Yeah. You weren't trying to hide the fact that conflict exists or some image of mom and dad. And you guys had a blended family as well. So even maybe speak a little more to what that looked like, um, having knowing where you stood and the ground that was yours, even though that can feel I don't know. Kids are kids are funny and yep. masterful. Yeah, they'll use, they'll use whatever excuse they can use. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And in the blended con context, um, our kids are a little bit older, um, and there's a, you're right. Where do you stand? Where are the lines drawn? Um, we, we, from the start, we weren't going to make this a family unless it was really a family. And so we had, hmm. um, communications with the kids privately with all of them before we decided to get married. Hey, we're thinking of doing this. You're coming with us if we do it. Um, but, but we don't want any step thing in this family. We're going to be a real family or we're not going yeah. to do it at all. And our kids had vows that they said to each other at our wedding. And, and so wow. it was, it was really, uh, we put it before the Lord and said, we, we don't want 
my kids and your kids, and you know, we don't want hierarchies and change of commands that are unnatural. We want a family, and and God blessed that, and the kids came alongside, and and really we never had um, moments where it was, hey, I'm going to go talk to my kids, and you deal with your kids, and your kids are being mean to my kids. We just that, that wasn't what we experienced because we put it before the Lord to start, and and the kids came alongside as part of that mission. I love that. Yeah, that's really powerful. Going back to the initial answer, I want to I wanna recap because that was really great what you said. Conflict is a part of life. Mm-hmm. They need to see parents navigate conflict well. Yes. There's nothing wrong with navigating conflict in front of your children. Yeah, absolutely. That, that being said, there are moments when it's not appropriate for the kids to be aware of the source of the conflict mm-hmm. or engage with the conflict. And in those moments, right. being intentional to communicate to your kids, hey, we're going to be okay but we're going to move to a different space so that we can navigate this tension in a way that is appropriate for what it is. Um, that's something that my parents, they, they definitely did conflict in front of us and they had moments where they withdrew as well. And something that they did very well is they would circle back and say, hey, we navigated this. And then they would also take ownership for anything that they navigated that was out of line or out yeah. of bounds, they would articulate that to us. And that helped us understand the right way and the wrong way to navigate conflict through what they did well and also through what they did wrong. So thank you, Dr. Lee. Now, I'm excited. Okay, so I know I'm, I'm geeking out right now, y'all. Uh, Dr. Lee, I'm going to give him my, my introduction. Okay, so Dr. Lee is, you're a neurosurgeon. You're an award-winning author. And I'm going to say this um, as someone who had the incredible honor to endorse this book right here. I'm holding up the book for those of you just listening. Hope is the first dose. He is an author who writes striking pose. I mean, it's prose, striking prose. It's stunning. Prose, not pose. He doesn't make a striking pose. Well, maybe he does. Maybe you do, Dr. Ward. Maybe you do make a striking pose. That's not what we're talking about today. But your prose is stunning. It's striking. It cuts to the heart. And you shared even before we started the show because this is the first time you're actually meeting Dr. Warren. I had the privilege of meeting him back in 2020 through a interesting series of events. We became quick friends. I actually put him on the phone with my mom. We were both going on a show and I was going up there first and we got to talking and realized that there were some things that connect our stories. And I actually put my mom on the phone. I was like, you've got to meet Dr. Warren, handed him my phone and then went up on the show and left my phone with Dr. Warren. And we've just become friends and is that partners. you use your mom to make close friends frequently or? I mean, this one, th- I mean, every once in a while you have to do it. And this was a golden opportunity for me to do that. Um, but we've been friends and I got the incredible privilege of endorsing this book. Um, and he was kind enough to endorse words with God. And I've been on his podcast and uh, just thrilled to have you here with us, Dr. Warren, grandfather, father. And uh, yeah, anything that I miss that our our, use, our our listeners should know, I'm trying to think if I missed anything. Well, I think another big part of my story is I uh, uh, went to the Iraq war. That was a, a big part of sort of my formation as a, a, as a human adult. So I think uh, my yeah. time in Iraq was a big part of that. So Veteran, thank you for your service, sir. And so, so much wisdom, depth here, and uh, just thrilled that you get to be on the show. Now, I want to dive in to the, to the topic of this book, Hope is the First Dose, mm. because we've had a lot of people express to us, hey, 
we hear you talk about family. We hear you talk about what it looks like for, for a family to do well, to thrive. But what about those moments when life doesn't seem good, when yeah. God seems distant, yeah. when it feels like we're, we're hopeless or we don't know how to navigate the situation that we're in? And uh, as, a, as a neurosurgeon in your fir first book, or not your first book, but the first book that I read, I've seen the end of you, you talk a lot about glioblastoma. And in, in this, this book, you make a statement. You say the deadliest disease known to man is not glioblastoma. It is hopelessness. Mm. Yeah. And Dr. Lee, I would love for you as, as a neurosurgeon, as someone who's had to wrestle with the uh, di diagnosis of glioblastoma, to, to look at patients and know, hey, once I make this diagnosis, I'm basically announcing that I've seen the end of you. Why is it that you've come to the point where you've said, no, actually, that's not the deadliest. Hopelessness is actually the deadliest. Yeah. Well, I, I really came to that understanding because I started actually even before I wrote I've Seen the Interview, one of the reasons I wrote that book was I was trying to figure out what to do as a doctor, as a physician to help people when I couldn't cure them with surgery. Right. So I saw all these people who had fatal diagnoses and they were going to die. But as a Christian, I knew that there's always room for prayer. There's a possibility of healing and it's super important. Yeah. We know not just from faith, but we know from scientific research of how people process their lives that, that if you lose hope, you really do worse in terms of outcome in every measurable way, even if you survive your illness. And so what that means is there are some people who have a problem, a medical problem, and they manage to survive it. But if they lose hope, then they are bitter, they're enraged, they drink too much, they stay in the hospital longer, they, they, they have problems in their family. They just people that aren't hopeful and don't have purpose and meaning in their lives don't do well even if their bodies survive. And so then I started paying attention to how people process these hard things that they go through. And I noticed another thing that was kind of stunning, that there are some people who are dying and they really die of their illness, but they never die in their spirit. And they have this, they, they tell a good story and they maintain hope and they help other people around them process what's happening to them. They help their families come alongside and understand that, yeah, I'm dying, but that's not the end of me. And so I started I was a little bit confused when I first started noticing that there are repeatable patterns in how people process this knowledge that they're dealing with some big, massive thing. And I started paying attention to that because I realized I can help people. If I can help them find hope, I can help them recover in their life and may, maybe make their families better or make the rest of their life better, even if it's a shorter life than they thought. And that's really where I came across this idea that hopelessness is the deadliest thing. And you know people, Addison and Julie, you know somebody right now who had something hard happen to them years ago, and that's still all they can talk about today. Like it, it's yeah. it's the yeah. thing that defines their life. And, and I'm now, as I started writing that, i uh, seen the interview, I got into the middle of thinking I understood how to help people. And that's when our son died and I became one of those people. And so then I started understanding that I thought I knew a lot about grief and trauma and how people handled hard things. And I was now one of those people. And some of the things that I thought I knew didn't turn out to be true, which is what that subtitle of that book was, the things we think we know. And I started paying attention again to how I was processing, handling things. And the thing that was hurting me the most was I lost my sense of 
that it was going to be okay. I had always been one of these guys that said, hey, it's going to be okay. I know God's going to take care of us. Whatever happens, it's going to be all right. And for several years after we lost Mitch, I didn't think that anymore. And it was killing me. Like I, I couldn't find my way to turn the lights back up. Even though I, I still believed in God and even though I was still working and even though my marriage was intact and my kids were okay and all that stuff, my kids were finding their way again, I didn't feel like I was ever going to find my way back to that place where I could say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm okay. And that was killing me. And so I think hopelessness really is, it turns out to be the the thing that will put its foot on your neck and not let you up if you can't find a way out from under it. Yeah. you Could we, I mean, this probably should have been the first question, but what would be your definition of hope? So hope and faith are, are related, but they're not the same, right? I mean, the Bible says that faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not yet seen. I, I like to say it like this, and it sounds a little corny, but it's true. Faith is that you know that God can do the things that He says He can do. You, you know that. Faith is that you know He can do the things He says He can do. Hope is the the hope that He'll do them for you, right? So so I, I know there's a resurrection. I know God can come alongside me. I know the Lord will be close to the broken heart. I just really hope He does it for me too. And so that, that yeah. was important to me to, to, to believe that those promises apply to me and not just in a general sense. The research, the sociologists that look at hope have found that really hope requires two things. It requires what they call agency, which means you have some ability to do something about the situation that you're wanting to, to find hope in. You have some, mm-hmm. some capacity to do something about it, agency. And then you have pathway, that there is actually a, a, a path from there to here. So hope is the, the the belief that you can get there from here. And so I think combining those two things, those two ideas that God really will do this thing for me, I have some ability to do something about it because I'm still alive, right? So if I'm still alive, I have the possibility of doing something. And then I can start to put the, follow the crumbs on the trail to get to that place. Then I can start to feel like I'm making progress towards hope and towards the goal of, of what it is that hope's driving me for. And the reason I called the book Hope is the First Dose is because I realized I can give you a plan. You know, Addison, if you come to my office with back pain and I realize you need back surgery, I can give you the best plan. I can be the best surgeon. I can have the best hospital and the best team. I can deliver the plan to you. But you've got to wake up the morning of surgery and you've got to believe that that surgery will help you enough to get in the car and drive to the hospital. Right. You've got to have hope that, that this can really happen for you or you'll stay home. And the best treatment plan in the world won't help you if you're not there to receive it. So our work in the receiving of this thing that God wants to do for us, this grace that we can't do for ourselves, just has to start with enough hope to say, I believe. Yeah. 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 In the book, you talk about the importance of prehab, which I loved when I came to that part because I'm reading the beginning you completely enthralled and in a matter of days because you are an incredible writer. I think I read, I've seen the end of you in four days. I just neglected everything else I was supposed to be doing. (laughs) So I'm reading through this and it's easy reading a book like this, this level of um, depth and intensity to feel like I'm going to tuck this away for a time when I need it. 
when TMT, as you refer to it in the book, the massive thing, when that happens to me, I'll tuck it away for then, but then you go to this place of prehab and the importance of prehab, which really is applicable to every single person listening to this, what it looks like to strengthen your hope in general so that you are whenever you come to that place, I can't remember your exact definite, not a dipper, a climber, the one that's steady, like giving yourself the best chance of being steady. So talk a little bit about that, that concept of prehab, where it's not the preparation. I mean, we, as, as people, as Christians, as people following the way of Jesus Christ, we're called to hope. And I think even now more than ever, the time and space that we find ourselves living in to be people of hope for that really to be the light shining through us. Yeah. So again, going back to what happens in my real office and you come in and and we decide that you're going to need back surgery or whatever, I send you to the physical therapist ahead of that because it's Mm -hmm. important to develop some, number one, some techniques and, and tricks and tools to help you recover from the surgery that's coming because surgery is a a form of trauma. It's going to hurt your body in order to help your body. So Mm -hmm. I send you to learn the mechanical things that you need to do to get through the the thing that's coming that we know is coming. And then also to prepare yourself to, to be strong and agile and avoid injury in that post-trauma setting. So, so you're getting prepared. And in the, in the hope space, it's this, it's, we're, we're not in this massive thing yet, but because we observe the universe around us and we know that everybody comes into trouble, like Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Then it's smart to prepare yourself for that coming trauma. And the way we do that is we fill our hearts and minds with things that are true. We make decisions about who God is so that we have good theology around suffering when it happens to us. It's one of the things that trauma does to you, Julie, is trauma fills your head with all these negative thoughts, most of which are not true. And you start hearing lies. And I think we, we all think that that's the enemy. He's trying to lie to you to make you despair and make you forget who God is and, and, and lose your way so that your story isn't helpful to other people. And so what happens is if you prehab properly, you put true things in your head that you can then recall when you hit that moment of trouble. That's why I say in the book, hope is memory and movement. It's just you've got to remember you're not that this is not the first time you've been through something hard in your life. Other people have survived and gone through hard things like this and made it through. God's been faithful before when people have hit hard times and, and he will be for you too. So you remember, and yeah. then you start moving. I got to get in the car and drive to the hospital. I got to get the treatment plan. I got to find my way back to hope and get myself back because this trauma is trying to kill me. And so prehab is that process of putting all that good stuff in your heart and in your head so that you will recall it later. And I think it's, it's analogous to the fact that I think Addison and I talked about this. We don't teach people to be prepared for emotional traumas or major massive things. We, we, we train for what are you going to do if you catch on fire? We teach school kids, stop, drop and roll, right? Like you got a plan in your, in your life for what's going to happen if you catch on fire, even though you usually don't catch on fire, right? We, yeah. we have a plan. We teach people CPR in case somebody has a heart attack. We teach people how to change flat tires in case they have a flat tire, but we don't teach people. Here's a set of tools for when your heart gets broken, when your child mm-hmm. dies, when you go through this massive thing, when, when you're, when the world is telling you that God isn't faithful. And so prehab is putting all that stuff together and rehearsing it. That's what Deuteronomy six is about. Like write this stuff down, rehearse it, teach it to your kids 
kids, put it on your forehead, talk about it so that yeah. it becomes second nature and you make all these synapses so that when life happens, when the massive thing happens, you don't fall prey to the stuff that isn't helpful in going forward. You, you can call to mind all those good things that you put in your heart ahead of time. It goes back to uh, what was in my head was Psalm 22, Psalm 22, one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? And I think for many of us, a part of that, that plan is creating space for us to articulate the pain that we're in and how that is a disconnect, a visible, palpable disconnect from the hope that we hold. And, and it's whenever you have hope, you have tension. You can't have hope without tension. Hope creates tension in our lives because our hope is in something that's different than what we're currently encountering and experiencing. And I think of that Psalm and I think of how Jesus dignifies that Psalm by quoting David's words on the cross, how he moved through that experience. But then later in that Psalm, verse 24, David also writes that God doesn't abandon the afflicted in their affliction nor does he turn his face from them. And I think for many of us, when we're in those moments, you call it the TMT in the book, the massive thing. And I remember when I was, um, when I was going through the book the first time and I was writing that, that endorsement, I remember writing something along the lines of, if you've experienced a TMT, you know what this is. And this book is for you and a part of your pathway forward. And if you don't know what TMT is, this will prepare you for what you will go through. As you mentioned from John 16, or James talks about in James 1, he talks about the various trials that we're going to navigate and how God is not a father of darkness or confusion or shadow. He's good. He's faithful. But the reality is we live in a broken world that breaks people. And even in the midst of that brokenness, we can... We can allow these broken and incomplete views of God and hope in the process to be broken off of us where we can mature more confident, more secure. And so much of that pre-surgery, that prehab is getting that in our spirits now when we're on those mountaintops. So when we go through the valleys, we have what we need to navigate those moments. And I just want people to hear like God's not afraid of, of your pain. Mm-hmm. That's right. He, he's not afraid of your painful words. He's not afraid of you articulating the disconnect between the hope that you had, the hope that you want to have, and the experience that you're in the middle of. He wants you to be honest about that. And a part of moving through it is being honest about it. But if we're going to be honest about that, we also need to hold intention what we've seen, the goodness and the faithfulness of God, which has been a part of our story, even in many of the darkest moments of our lives. And it's through moving through both of those, holding them both in our hands that we understand God and the character of God and how he will move in our situation, even if that's if it's very different than what he thought he would do or how we thought he would move. Yeah. So. Yeah, thinking of this in the context of family and walking yeah. through massive things together, but also individually. And then, you know, when you as a family are moving through something, you have individuals involved. And so they're going to be going through it at their own pace and in their own way. How do we do that well, both in our families of origin, but as the family, how do we walk shoulder to shoulder with one another through these things? What are the offerings that are actually helpful to the person going through it and not just 
checking the box to feeling like you've done something or yeah, relieving the discomfort. Like I need to say something or I need to do something because I'm a friend. I need to have something wise and you have something clear to offer. So what are the good things? And also Dr. Lee, I would ask you, what are the things that aren't helpful? Mm-hmm. Whether and and you write about this in the book, but but what are what are those things that we feel pressured to say that we don't need to say, and what is valuable in those moments when we're navigating a situation where someone we love is is hopeless? Well, and I think even just I'm thinking of hopeless. a very specific situation. If you're full of hope, mm. but someone else who is going through it on the same level you are just isn't there. What can you offer to them? Obviously saying all the things and, you know, hoping it'll just rub off on them often only goes too far. Is it just living it out, letting your hope speak for itself? I think there's a there's a lot to unpack in that in that several yeah. questions. <laughs> well, we asked like five questions <laughs> about how. <laughs> first thing is, I, I think Julie, the first thing is a really important point that you're bringing up here, and it is it is this that we we have it's it's bad that our school system and and pop psychology has adopted Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief model um because what they did is they took that model because it's easy to digest and they said this is how people grieve and they teach everybody you're in denial or anger or anger or bargaining or sadness or depression or acceptance and you're and everybody has this concept especially in the United States we've taught for years now this is the process of people grieving and we have this idea all of us have this idea of how long somebody should take to progress through grief and and most of us whether we'll admit it or not if somebody's you know, cat died three years ago, we think they should be done grieving over that by now. And we have this clock that we put on the process. And if it's really hard in families. I wrote it in the book. I said, we all suffer together, but we grieve alone. Like your, your grief process is individual and it's unique and it will be different because you had a different relationship with that person that you lost. Or if you're the one that's dying and your spouse is the one that's losing a spouse, it's a different, it's a different process. So the first thing is, I think it's very important to understand Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief were not designed. The study that she used to develop that model was not about how people respond when they've lost another person or when their spouse has cancer. That that model specifically, her research was about how do people process the news that they have a terminal illness. And so it's a very specific research project that she did that she wrote that book about. How do people handle the news that they're dying? And she found that they kind of progressed through this relatively repeatable model of denying it and being angry about it and bargaining with God about it and then being depressed and finally coming to accept it. And that works for that specific set of problems when you find out that you're dying. It doesn't work if you try to apply it to to grief in general or processing pain in general. And so that's really important to know. Everybody grieves in a different way and everybody grieves in a different timeline. So if your spouse is having a really hard time processing something that you're moving through more easily than they are, you need to give them grace and compassion and be patient with them and be ready to extend a, a hand. And as a caregiver, as, as somebody alongside another person, I like I think a book like mine or somebody that's written a, a, a treatment plan of some sort, you can think of it as a sort of an EpiPen, like to have a set of tools that you carry with you that you can help to lend or apply to other people when they're going through something hard and, and elements of things that we know to be true are helpful. 
Addison, to add to answer your part of that question, what is not helpful? I think we need another three or four hours on this podcast to deal with that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I could write a book about stuff that people, stupid things we say to each other when we're hurting. Yeah. Christians are really bad about it because we have a fear of silence. We, we want to say something helpful. We show up and, and we, we feel like we need to, to say something helpful. So we start saying things that we think will be helpful and we quote scriptures that we think will be helpful. And one thing as, a, as, a, as an aside, I think it's really important to have to, to be careful to have good theology around the ways in which you counsel people when they're hurting. And one of the things that somebody said to me is, well, I guess God needed another angel, right? That's It's a terrible thing to say when somebody loses a child for, for numerous reasons. But one is people don't turn into angels when they die. That That's bad theology, yeah. right? It yeah. doesn't happen that way. And if, if they did, if God did turn people into angels, then it would be really capricious and mean of him to take my son and turn him into an angel when he could have just created a new one. Right. If if we believe that God is the creator who can make angels. So so be careful what you say to people and make sure that it's true, first of all. And if it's true, then is it delivered in love and with the right attitude and at the right time? So there's certainly a timing. Here's a good example of that. Romans 828 is this powerful scripture that has powerful theology. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's true. It's terrible to hear the day after your son dies. Hey, God's yeah. going to turn this into good somehow. God, God's going to make something good out of this. You can't hear that right then. You no. can't. You can't process it. And you want to punch somebody like when they say it to you, like, no, God's not going to do something good out of this. But what happens over time is perspectives start to change, and God starts to reveal things that you couldn't process, and, and things start to become true true over time. Like I've, since we started, Addison and I talked about this before, since I started podcasting, two different people have reached out and said, Hey, I was going to commit suicide today, but something you said on your show gave me hope and I'm not going to do that now. And so that's a good thing. My podcast delivered something that they needed. I started my podcast because of Mitch dying. And so something good has come out of my son's death, right? But it's not good that my son died. That's a quantum physics thing where two things can be true at the same time. So you have to understand, is the thing I'm about to say true? And is it necessary for me to say it right now? Is it compassionate for me to say it right now? And can I say it in a way that will help this person and not wound them in some way? So so I think that's the first thing is be really just careful. And the most the, the, the most helpful thing that anybody ever said was, hey, this is really hard and I'm sorry. That you're having to go through this. That's helpful. It's powerful. And it's enough. Like my, my friend John Swanson is a hospital chaplain and deals with this a lot. And he says the most important thing you can do is show up and shut up. Like just just show up and be quiet and be in space with people. And that's the, I think that's really hard to do. It's hard to keep your mouth shut sometimes, but it really turns out to be helpful. I had a friend named Zane who's a nurse that worked with me and he just showed up at my house. He hugged us. He said, I'm really sorry. I'm going to go sit over in the corner, and when you need something, you tell me, and I'll go do it. And he stayed for like three days. He kept coming back every day. And once in a while, somebody would say, you know what? We're out of toilet paper. And Zane would be like, I'm on it. I got it. And that turned out to be incredibly helpful. He just showed up and helped and served, but he didn't talk, which is equally helpful. There's, a, there's an old quote. It goes, we do not know each other yet. We have not yet dared to be silent together. And I think... Um, I think that encapsulates doctorly what you're saying. Like these are these are moments when God can forge 
connections and intimacy. And of course, that's a part of his redemptive process, but that's often in just the silence and the presence. Yeah. And you see things about people that you wouldn't have seen or known about them when they're silent and when they're present. And when you're present to their silence and present to their pain, and you're okay with that being the extent of what you have to give. There's not this false pressure to be a savior or whatever in that situation that you're not capable of being. Yeah. You're just there. Yeah. And so I, listen, y'all, there's been a lot of great things to take from this podcast, but I know if we practice that as the people of God, the people are to extend hope in the darkest of situations. If we practice that gift in each other's lives, man, that, that'll communicate so much. Yeah. Show up, be silent, bring food, preferably healthy food, because that's what people should be putting in their body. <laughs> but delicious food. I mean, so, sometimes, yeah, but sometimes you need something that's just delicious. I just, you know, I don't want to encourage all the casseroles because it just yeah. seems to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like to move in the opposite direction. That's good. Yeah. I'm, there's just so much, so many different directions we could go because I love the way you do talk about the self-brain surgery. I mean, these are practical tools that people just should be sharpening which is the day theme in of, and day out. Which is the theme of his podcast, too. So this is a shameless plug. That's what he goes after with his podcast. Oh, good. Yeah, the self-brain surgery. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, which I don't, I don't think you knew that, but I, I, I do know that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just making sure everyone knows that. And, and we'll put all of this in, in the show notes and stuff, whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening to it. We'll make sure you all have all that information um, because Dr. Lee's message, his life, yeah. his, his books, y'all, it is it has profoundly impacted me. I know that it's saved lives. I know that he's done the difficult, hard work, and I've seen the formation in his life personally. Um, and I'm just grateful for the way you are. You are incredibly brilliant, but you are also kind mm -hmm. and um, and very human. And yeah, very. Thank you. And I mean, we, we get on here. You're talking about neuroscience and neurosurgeon, talking about things that are way above our pay grade and ab above our acumen. And I mean, was a joke that you make about rocket science? What do you say? <laughs> my, my, my son. So before Mitch died, he and Josh were joking one day, and 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 Mitch said, "Hey, what do people's, what do brain surgeons say? You know, like people say it's not rocket science, it's not brain surgery. Like, what, what do brain surgeons say?" And, and my son Josh said, "They probably say it's not like trying to talk to girls." <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was because we're kind of nerds right but she knows we might get into that on a later at home with the viewers episode because we've we've had some conversations recently about how to talk to girls the right way 14 year old son um <laughs> but julie is there anything else that you'd like to ask dr lee and dr lee is there anything else you'd want to share with our listeners viewers before we have you pray them out i, I think the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with is this um we talked about self-brain surgery a second ago. The, the, the thing that, that makes you come back alive again when you encounter these massive traumas and massive things is remembering who God is and remembering who you are in Him. And that's what Romans 12, 2 is about, really. Yeah. 
your brain is going to tell you, your enemy is going to tell you, all hope is lost. It can't feel better again. You'll never be okay. All these things are going to happen. And that's what the world will tell you too. Our world, our secular society right now is saying, whatever you feel is true. Like if you feel it, go after it because that's what's true. And you're going to feel some things that are impossible to survive if you don't learn how to change your mind. So Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed anymore to what the world wants you to think or feel or be. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's how you can test and improve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. So what that means is you can learn how to think about the things that you think about. And you can learn how to let God transform them and give you a new mind about it. And that's how you can see it is possible to live again after you lose a child. It is possible to even maybe be happy again after your spouse gets glioblastoma. It's possible because God can change your mind about it. And that's what's important. Yeah, that's powerful. I love that. Thank you so much. Like Addison said, like you have taken things that would just break people. And allowed the Lord to mold it into such a powerful tool for good. But that has taken a lot of hard yeses. And I just am so, like, personally really appreciative for that. But also just as a body, like, thank you. Thank you for modeling that. Thank you for the fruit that's come from it all around. Thank you, Julie. You guys, your family have made a huge difference in our lives, too. i got so many of Addison. Both your books are right over my right shoulder, and and, uh, your parents have been so important to me. And we we just love you all, and I'm so grateful to have this shared space today. Well, thank you, Dr. Warren. We would love for you to pray, if you wouldn't mind praying for our listeners. And before I have you do that, I just want to make sure that everyone hears me loud and clear. Please do yourself a favor. I'm holding it up right now. Hope is the First Dose by Dr. Lee Warren. Again, we'll put all the information in the show notes. I can't see a world where you would regret reading that book Mm. or having that book to give to someone, yes, who's navigating a season. And that's honestly, that's that's why I have copies of this book at my home. So, Dr. Lee, thank you. And would you mind praying for us? Absolutely. Father God, thank you so much for this day and this incredible hour that we've had to spend time here with Julie and Addison and all the people who are listening around the world. We we give you thanks and praise in advance for the way that you're going to use your word um, through our words to minister and help people recover from these difficult things. God, you told us two things that are hard to swallow and hard to put together. You said, we're going to have a hard time in this world. And you also said, I came here that you can have an abundant life. And it's hard for us to understand with our feeble minds how those two things can be true. And we just ask you, Father, as the great physician, to do a a graft for us, to just sew those two things together in our spirit so we can know that we can have and, we can have hard times and that you are still faithful and you love us and we can have hope again. And we look forward to the day when you break all this down for us and and take the scales off our eyes so we can see, like you see, what's really true and that there's days that you wipe all those tears out of our eyes. We look forward to that. But in the meantime, Father, we are grateful for the ways that you minister to us. And I ask you right now, whoever's hurting out there, that you lift them, hold them, heal them, help them, give them the treatment plan from you, the great physician, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 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 Everyone, thank you so much for joining us here today at At Home with the Beveers. Guys, we are always so thrilled whenever you leave questions that we can go right ahead and answer. So if you have any questions, make sure to leave a comment wherever you like to listen to your podcast. Also, make sure to rate and subscribe. It really helps out our show and helps it get 
all around the world. Again, guys, we are so thrilled that you joined us here today where we want to help you create a legacy starting at home.